So here on Testimony Sunday, as we prepare to hear a few testimonies in just a minute, I wanted to begin with a, with a passage of Scripture that I think can help sort of set the, set the tone and the direction for what it is that we're trying to accomplish here as we gather in a slightly different environment than normal uh, during our worship time. Listen to these words from 2 Corinthians 3. The only letter of recommendation we need is you yourselves. Your lives are a letter written in our hearts. Everyone can read it and recognize our good work among you. Clearly, you are a letter from Christ showing the result of our ministry among you. This letter is written not with pen and ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. It is carved not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. We are confident of all this because of our great trust in God through Christ. It is not that we think we are qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualification comes from God. He has enabled us to be ministers of his new covenant. This is a covenant not of written laws, but of the Spirit. The old written covenant ends in death, but under the new covenant, the Spirit gives life. I love that powerful image that, that our lives are a letter written with the Spirit of the living God about God's work in and through and all around us. And so today we're going to read a few of those letters here on Testimony Sunday. Those letters, the God stories in the lives of some folks from our church family will hopefully be a, a source of, of encouragement, inspiration, challenge, conviction, whatever the Lord might do as he stirs in our hearts as we listen to these folks as they share. So I'm going to ask our, our first testimony to come forward. I believe that's Craig and Glenn is going to come forward. Each of those testimonies are going to be, be led by one of our elders um, who will sort of guide us through this time. So Glenn, thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. Our first testimonial is by Craig Weaver. Craig has been attending the church, what, a year and a half or so? Uh, many of you probably don't know him because he often comes to the first service, I believe, and uh, he hasn't been here this long, but uh, to go back to what Chad was saying about letters, he's got a very interesting letter, fascinating story to tell. Uh, for most of his adult life, Craig has been a drug addict. Uh, and 13 years ago, he became clean, but he still felt like something was missing in his life. As I was talking to him, I just met him a couple days ago, and he told me that he still felt like he just sort of had this hole in his life. He just didn't have peace. So he was still searching for something. And many of you know the Wickers, uh, who go to our church here. Uh, He's friend of the Wickers, and they invited him to come to church. And so for the last year and a half, he's been coming to church. He's been reading the Bible, and that's where he found God. Or maybe I should say God found him. So maybe you could start us off. Uh, it, it's, 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 his story uh, has so many twists and turns. I think the biggest problem he's going to have is to compress it down into 10 minutes. So we've got our own little secret thing where I'm supposed to tell him when he's running out of time. Yeah. It's our code. It's, it's not this. Uh, uh, so maybe you could start off by telling us how you became addicted to drugs in college and then uh, how you became clean and then go from there and tell us about 
how you uh, came to the Lord. Uh, hello, everybody. I want to thank Pastor Chad for giving me this opportunity. Um, to know me back in high school, you would have thought I was, um, you know, uh, we called ourselves jocks back then. We, I played football. I wrestled. Uh, you know, I was uh, in with a good crowd. And I got accepted to IUP. And uh, I was going there for psychology, criminology. So I took off, and things were going pretty good. I was playing football for IUP, and then I joined a fraternity, uh, Phi Kappa Psi. And once a year, you, you have a yearly football game, a tackle football game. So we're playing this game, and as you always have, two of the brothers really disliked each other. You know, you just have a melting pot of people, and they're just getting to know each other. One guy was 300 pounds, and he, there was no fat. This guy was an athlete. He was on offense, and I'm on defense, linebacker, and the guy beside me, this guy despised. He couldn't stand him. So being young and stupid, the back comes out of the field, and he's trying to hurt this guy. I mean, he came at him full force. So... I'm behind this man, and the man moves, and here comes his 300-pound body through the air, the small of his back hitting right above my knee, and people said you could hear the crack 100 yards away. My femur, it just cracked right in half. My leg was a V-shape on the field, and I remember coming in and out of consciousness, I could see people throwing up, and I'm thinking, what's going on? Like, hello? Well... It was one of the worst breaks. Uh, the only thing holding my bone or my leg on were tendons. I pretty well ripped all the muscles apart. So I'm in the ambulance. I'm in. The, then the next thing I remember is the emergency room, and uh, I'm still coming in and out of consciousness. They haven't given me anything for pain. Here comes this disheveled-looking man. I'll never forget this. He comes beside me, he looks down at me, and his hair was going everywhere. He had like a four-day growth, and he smelled. I mean, I can remember this, even though I'm like probably in shock. I could smell, this guy was like, looked like a bum. And, you know, so he goes, I'm your doctor, uh, James P. Berkeley. He said, you have one of the worst breaks I've ever seen in my life. He said, we can't pin you and put a cast on there. He said, it's the thickest part of the femur right above the kneecap. He said, get ready. You're going to be in traction for a long time. So now, imagine how bad the pain would be <laughs> if your biggest bone in your body is broken apart at the biggest place. But then I'm laying in bed with a wire, a pin connected, connected right here, and a conveyor belt with a 20-pound weight pulling on that 24-7. Three months I had to lay like that. And the one thing I remember is this doctor leaned over and whispered to me, he said, Craig, you're going to be in a lot of pain, but I'm going to make sure you don't feel a thing. In fact, you're going to enjoy your stay. And I'm thinking, am I in the, is this real? Am I in the twilight zone? Well, my mouth's drying out, excuse me. Here I come to realize, ladies and gentlemen, that my doctor, James P. Berkeley, was in the Vietnam War. 
he was about eight years out of it, but he was massively addicted to morphine and heroin. He himself was a drug addict. They, this, is, this is a pseudonym, right? Pardon me? This, the, the, that's a pseudonym, the doctor's name? Oh, yeah, it's not his real yeah. name. Okay. Uh, All right. Trust me. He's so don't look it up on Google or anything like that. Well, he's either past or he's 99 years old, and I'm not sure. I'm not too worried about it, but yeah, I uh, made up the name. But anyways, I, the hospital stay was wild. I mean, the medical records, every four hours I'd get a shot of morphine, and then in between maybe a shot of Demerol, but for breakthrough pain, Percocet, Loracet, Darvacet, Valium, muscle relaxers, Somas, uh, 28 pills a day plus four shots of morphine 24-7. I left that hospital a changed person. I, and, and it was 1980. We didn't know much about addiction. There was only two rehabs in the country. There was Betty Ford and then Gateway, uh, north of Pittsburgh. So, you know, I just knew that I felt great. Well, here's the problem, ladies and gentlemen, is... I wrote a book. It took me seven years to write it. The first uh, chapter of my book is called The Perfect Storm. I had a pretty dysfunctional childhood. Instead of one traumatic event, I had three, and they were all pretty major. Uh, first, at five years old, I always pet the dog, my neighbor's dog, a Dalmatian Shepherd. And I'm this tall, and I go over to pet it one night, and they had just thrown chicken bones out for it to eat after supper. The dog lunged at me and literally bit half my face off. It was just hanging. My ear was hanging. And they had to, instead of rushing me to the emergency room, my dad knew the doctor. He said, bring him down to my house. He throws me on the kitchen table, Dr. McGee. He wasn't even a surgeon. He didn't even, you know, he put 200 and 59 stitches and he said my face looked like Hamburg so that was just to put it back together so here I am five years old I start school with this gigantic scar on my face and you know how kids can be <laughs> the scar face was my biggest nickname all through school but uh, I've had eight operations uh, the more I grew and uh, God bless Dr. Gibbons he conformed it to the shape of my beard and one place got infected, there's a piece of plastic in here, but he did a great job. Second thing, not pimples, cystic acne. I inherited it from my mother, and it would be so bad, f I mean, for, it was so bad for me, but I can't even imagine what my mother went through. But they aren't pimples, ladies and gentlemen, these are sores. Uh, your oil glands secrete too much oil, and you, they don't pop, they grow on the inside, and if you try to squeeze them, they just get bigger and they blossom, some of them harden. But I had cystic acne from about 12, 13 on. My face, my shoulders, my back. When I played football, every time I'd run, the pain would be so bad that it was unbearable. When I'd wrestle, I'd have to wear three shirts because some would break open and they'd be bloody. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was the most disgusting thing to go through. I washed, I showered five times a day. It's just something you have to deal with. And I had a beautiful mother. She was gorgeous. And I just can't imagine what a woman goes through with that.
Could, could you tell us what happened? And after, so most of your adult life, you were addicted to drugs. And could you tell us what happened then after, you know, you said 13 years ago you became clean? Yes. Um, tell us a little more about that. Okay. Third thing, my father was an alcoholic, and he had a temper, and every day of our lives we wondered if he was going to come home drunk or not. So those three things, every second of every minute of every day, were on my mind. When I got addicted to opiates, it's a huge conundrum uh, because they would let me forget about all these things. They would let me just throw all that back in the back of my head, and it was like, oh my goodness, I'm saved. You know, I don't have to think. Well, life conundrum. So I spent most of my life maintaining an addiction. I was with Dr. Berkeley. I started a steak and seafood company, a delivery service, and Dr. Berkeley became one of my customers, and he kept my addiction going. He had 70 of his patients addicted. His kids were addicted. His wife was addicted. And he would trade food for pain pills. And, you know, back then, Oxycontin come out. I had no problem getting Oxycontin. But you didn't know much about addiction. And all I knew is if I didn't take an opioid, six or eight hours later, I start getting sick. And I'm at Dr. Berkeley's house the day he killed his wife with an overdose of morphine. I'm delivering food, loading the freezer. His wife's yelling, I need my morphine. He gives her too much, she passes away. So that's just one of the things. But I became very successful. Even though I was an opioid addict, I started a steak and seafood business, a home delivery service. And I went to every town in two states, uh, mainly Pennsylvania, like all over. And I built up these areas, and I would deliver to their homes. I'm talking three, 400 people in State College, Clearfield, Phillipsburg, Lewistown, you know, uh, all over the place. And I would go back every month. The company was Anchors Away Steak and Seafood Company, but they, I, I started my own. I, I broke off because I found if I became my own, you know, business, I could get better prices than that. Then, you know, I'm having problems with addiction. I'm getting in trouble, blah, blah, blah. My whole life is gone. I found the jewelry distributor, the biggest jewelry distributor in on the Eastern Coast. So I started combining jewelry taken to their homes and food taken to their homes. And next thing, I'm putting up jewelry stores. I'm having jewelry shows. The money I was making was totally incredible, but I didn't care. I, I couldn't care less. I was addicted. Um, I was living two lives in one where I had to get my money in that from all these wealthy people, but I also had to find the people in the town, I call them the junkyard dogs, to get my opioids. I mean, you can, one is too many and a thousand's never enough. You always run out, so you always have to find. So here I am going to all these towns for years, and basically I'm making tons of money, throwing it away. I couldn't think of the next day. I just cared about that day. And then finally, at the age of 42, I tried my first bag of heroin. And only because uh, there was nothing around. And do you know, three years after that, I couldn't handle that. I was in the back streets of Altoona. I was with the junkyard dogs. I walked out of a $250,000 home. I walked out of my jewelry stores. Here I am lugging around eight cases of over a million dollars worth of jewelry that I owned. I didn't owe a thing on them. I was sick. 
I was going insane, and I was crying out for help. I was crying out. I didn't know what to do. I was getting sicker and sicker. Next thing, I'm up to such an amount of the worst thing you can be on, I started getting too sick to work. I started becoming an animal. I mean, basically, you can't function. So I had an epiphany one day. I'm finally dying. I'm literally dying. <laughs> I would be driving my vehicle, and I would just see buildings crumbling in front of me, and it would be everything must go. The, I don't Voices were coming to me. All I could think of was everything must go to save me. Money became evil. Uh, Diamonds became evil. Every, you know, any ways and means to get my drugs of choice became evil. And people still think I'm nuts to this day. I couldn't give it to somebody and go to a rehab and do this and go to, uh-uh. As long as I had, you know, that much money and that much worth, I had to get rid of it. I literally threw away over a million dollars worth of jewelry in the little Juniata River heading down towards the Susquehanna River. I threw it away. I dumped it in one of the fastest places. I got rid of every cent I had. I left my home. I only owed 50000 on it. And I went to White Deer Run. And they kept me for 90 days. My insurance only paid for 30. But they wouldn't let me leave. They said I was the sickest person they'd ever seen. And basically, I knew I had to save my life. So I went to White Deer Run, and thank God, I come out of there broke, <laughs> and I didn't care. I could not care less. I was alive, and I got on this kick to work out and to start becoming healthy again. But there, there was still something missing, something. I was an empty shell. I, I just had no happiness. I had no sense of worth. I had no self-esteem, and I started crying out. I started looking. I started asking. I started there, my goodness, there has to be more to this, and I met a pastor from Clearfield that every time I'd see him, he'd be happy. He'd be smiling, and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, how do you do this? What's your secret? And then I finally met the right people, uh, the Wickers, and I thank God he was, Craig was, Craig won, excuse me. Craig won was trying to get me, inside joke there, you guys, it's, it's pretty cool. He was trying to get me to go to a hockey game, and I said, how about just taking me to church? <laughs> and, you know, it's like, yeah, I just want to go to church and see what it's like. And, you know, that was about a year and a half ago. And now I'm seeing bits of peace, serenity, happiness, and they're coming. And God is beautiful. And I'm seeing miracles, but they're not miracles that you expect to see, like, you know, something coming out of nowhere or something. No, these are miracles that come when you need them, not when you want them. But my goodness, I'll tell you what, I am such a changed person. I wrote a book. It took me seven years to write it. And it, it tells about my deep dives, how I kept trying to get clean, how I couldn't get clean. Um, and I wanted to commit suicide, but you know what? I kept saying on the last couple months of my run, I kept saying, two weeks I'm going to commit suicide. <laughs> so I'd write some bad checks because I was broke, get what I needed, 
two weeks would go by, two more weeks. And then I kept thinking, what if there is a God? If you kill somebody, that's a sin, and you're not going to go to heaven. I am somebody, so if I kill myself, <laughs> I may not go to heaven. And I swear, that's the only reason I didn't commit suicide. But I went to White Deer Run, and now, even though I'm still broke, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've kept a few customers, but I'm in the, I just, in fact, today is the official beginning of Craig Weaver's opioid and fentanyl crisis ministry. And I, <laughs> I can help people, and I just get down to the basics with them, and uh, I care about them, and I want it to be faith-based. I want them to know that they are somebody, uh, know that they, every, God didn't make any junk. We all are somebody, and we have special abilities, but I love people. I care about, like, I don't know if you want to call it humanity, but I will help anybody. I will talk to anybody. I've spent hours. And okay. And so basically, ladies and gentlemen, I am just blessed to be alive. And God is absolutely wonderful. And I am here. And I thank all of you for listening. God bless you. So, Craig, let's pray for you, and uh, thank God for the work he's done in your life. Dear God, um, I just talked to Craig on the phone a couple days ago and just met him this morning, but I thank you for the testimony he has. I pray that you bless him in this work. Help us to realize, God, that, uh, that you're at work in this world, and like Pastor Chad just read the verse in the Bible about how we're letters. Help us to be good letters. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I have the uh, privilege of introducing to you uh, this morning someone, a uh, family that is relatively new to our family here at State College Alliance Church, but I didn't realize that because I've had the privilege of having their two oldest kids at sports camp the last two years, so I kind of always thought they went here. Um, I had Stevie and Cecilia and, and Ninja Fit. Yeah, Ninja Fit. Um, so tell us a little bit about how your journey that brought you here to State College Alliance. Well, we're very grateful to be here at State College Alliance. Um, our kids years ago found out about the Alliance Sports Camp, and Bill Jester always made us feel really welcome. And the kids had such a great week. Every year they would look forward to it. They would ask me at the beginning of summer, Mom, can we go again? Can we go again? Um, and it was just a part of our summer. So when 2020 hit and we were looking for a new faith home um, as we were being able to come back uh, to church with our family, I suggested to Luke, I said, you know, why don't, why don't we try that sports camp place? You know, that, that alliance, the kids really liked it. Um, and, you know, when we, when we first got married, family was a very important thing to us. We wanted to have a big family. We wanted to raise them in the church. We wanted to let our kids know God and love God. Um, and we just weren't there. Um, so our first Sunday when we came to Alliance, uh, we were met with the big outdoor service. Um, and when we came in, we sat down our lawn chairs, and we're a pretty big 
motley crew wherever we go. Um, and of course, it was the baptisms. And the first thing in the sermon was, we're here to talk about our kids. And we're here to talk about the next generation and what we can do to serve our families and our children. And I looked at Luke and I said, wait a minute, did they know we were coming? Did they plan this? Um, and so we knew we were in the right place at the right time um, because, you know, family's been so important to us. Now, when we first got married 14 years ago, um, we initially thought we couldn't have kids. Um, and clearly, that's wrong. Um, <clears throat> and so when we started having, having children, um, we wanted a place for them. Um, and Alliance has given us that. Um, we also wanted a place where we could write our story with our kids, with God. And I, I brought our, well, my favorite scripture um, that we started with when we got married, talking about the vision. Um, you know, we sung this morning about creating the vision and the story. Um, so this is from Habakkuk, chapter 2. The Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on the tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. Now, it's the new year, so a lot of us probably have some, some goals for the new year. Um, but this has been 14 years and we're still crafting this story and I think the most wonderful thing sitting here New Year's Day with our family um, is that it's not just that God is in the story but God's inviting us to write the story with him when she said let's check out that Alliance place I was like meh okay you know um, having been in a faith tradition that that just just even thinking about going to another place it, it was a big challenge in my my mind, right? So I had to overcome that. But I also thought, well, I mean, it can't be all that bad. The sports camp is pretty cool, you know. Um, so it just happened that I'll, I'll just fill in a little bit of the detail. It just it so happened that that day um, she said that I, it was a Saturday, and I went outside, and um, uh, Shore Diker was walking down the street, and he has a large family like ours. But I never see him walking down the street. It's just his mother-in-law happened to be in from Spain, and she, he was taking her for a round. And I said, hey, um, Short, we're, we're thinking of checking out your church tomorrow. And he said, oh, well, um, the service is at 10 o'clock, not at 10.30. And if, if he wouldn't have been there, we would have come at 10.30 and been late, and that would have been, you know, typically we're not on time anyway. <laughs> so it, it would have been, it wouldn't have been a good experience, right? But because he, he just happened to be there at that moment, and we knew, oh, well, that's great, because now we knew when to be, when, you know, when to come. And we, we came, and we were really impressed with just how things were done. And, and um, our foster child at the time had never seen a baptism before, and that was an amazing event. All of our kids were like, what's going on? You know, and it, it was just nice to be in a place where they affirmed Jesus. Like, they weren't afraid to say his name. And uh, where it's actually okay, you know. Um, and after the service, I'm a big fan of food. So you, you really got me with the barbecue. But what was interesting is we, 
note, it was worth the money, right? So we did not know anybody. We still didn't know anyone. We just heard the message we just saw. So we sat down. There was this lively couple there, uh, Dutch and Leah, who happened to be sitting there. I think they're elder members of your, of your, uh, of your church. Um, they welcomed us in. They, they saw our kids. Start, they started talking to Dawn about the kids, and, and we said we were going through uh, fostering to adopt. And that's when Leah says, oh, we adopted nine kids. You know, we fostered 27 kids. I was like, wow. You know, we were, you know, the backstory is we were having a lot of, it, it was difficult for us. I mean, the, the state of Indiana wasn't easy to work with. And just learning how to be new parents to a kid who was raised in, with trauma is, was a whole new experience for us. And we just didn't know. And so they started talking about that. And we're like, wow what are the chances, right? We would sit down with somebody who has been through this process, not just once, but so many times. And then I, I, and Dutch is like, so uh, where do you live? And I tell him, well, we live on Westerly Parkway. He's like, oh, what house? I'm like, it's between the church and, and uh, OLV and the, this high school. He says, I built your house. <laughs> that was just a little weird. <laughs> You know, something about, something about just, you know, if, if it would have been my timing, I, 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 I couldn't have been more perfect, right? This, this place that we came to, just, it's just like they knew us immediately, right? And it was just, it's, it's just a blessing. Like, sometimes your, your messages from, from God aren't, aren't like big kicks in the butt. You know, sometimes they're just really subtle, and it's perfect timing that you could never have imagined on your own. And so we've been trying to expand our house. We've been trying to expand our family. And it's interesting that it first started with the church. Because once we came here, we knew it was okay to ask others to pray for us. We had been working to try to add on to our house ever since we moved in. Because we were just a little crowded. Um, it's very loud. Our family's very loud. And so they're very quiet right now. I don't know why. They're, they're nervous. I'm going to call them out. But... Uh, We've been trying to expand, and it has been a mess. Like, not only is State College notorious for its code and, and you know, and stuff. Uh, if anybody works in code, that's not a slight on you. Uh, but, you know, and we, we were ghosted by 15 contractors. Um, just so many people said no, and they just wouldn't do the project. And we're, in, in the meantime, we're trying to foster Al and trying to find an adoption date and trying to work that through. And it's like the courts just, they just, they just, they ghosted us too. They just like disappeared. And suddenly what happens is we ask Alliance to help pray for our adoption. We, help, we ask them to help pray for our expansion. You know, that week we got an appraisal back on our, on our house project. It was so crazy. I don't even know what the lady, what God had put in her mind. But the bank was like, okay, you're going to do this, right? It was, we were worried that it wasn't going to go through and when the numbers came in, it was just, we would be crazy not to do this. And then, and that was, it was like an answer to prayer because it was not um, empirically possible that our house would be worth that much. But with God, <laughs> money's not an issue, I guess. Um, the amazing thing was, when finally the contractor got in a hold of me, he said, you know, out of, out of the blue, hey, we're starting Tuesday. I'm like, oh, okay. 
we're going to start Tuesday. An hour later, I got an email that said, so your adoption date is Tuesday. <laughs> okay? So not only are we expanding our house, we're expanding our home. And we want to just let you know that, that Al Joseph Lorenz is now an official member of the PAC. Right? And he's got some great siblings. But I will also tell you, there's a lot of mud in our house right now. And it's not just physical mud, which there's a lot of that. But there's a lot of mud learning how to bring another person into your family. And we are asking your prayers to continue for us because it has been so amazing to sort of let go on our end and, and just see prayers being answered without even an effort. I mean, there's a lot of effort, but it's like when God says it's time, you know, it's time, and we can't push it. And so we want to say we really appreciate this church, and we, we really appreciate the, the prayers that have gone, and um, I really appreciate also, by the way, when, I, when I'm feeling melancholy, and members will just come up to me and say, hey, how are you doing? You know, I haven't met you, but hi. That means everything to me, because that's not, that never happened in my other church. Like, that just was not a thing. And it's amazing that you have a community that really practices what they preach, you know? So thank you very much. Thank you guys so much. It is so neat uh, for me just to hear the story and see how God just every step of the way has been with you. And it's not been easy, and there's a lot of trust there, but every time those doors have just been opening and you guys have been walking through it. So let me pray for you, and then um, let's do that, Lord. Lord, I thank you so much for this family. Lord, I thank you for the way that you've laid on their heart to expand their family. Uh, and thank you so much for the way that you have been faithful in leading them. And despite all the disappointment and the, and the frustration that comes with not hearing back, Lord, that you continue to draw them forward. Lord, may we as a, as a community of faith here be devoted to them in prayer as they learn uh, to parent uh, and bring in a, a new family member. God, may this be a time where they see your hand working in their lives. May it be a time where they draw closer to you, knowing that you have amazing plans in their lives. And Lord, we thank you so much for uh, all of the people in our church, especially who have felt that draw, that, that call to take on uh, fostering and adoption. Lord, you call us to that, Lord, and some people you have gifted so extremely well to minister your love to those people. And we thank you for the Lorenz family who's doing that too. Lord, bless them and keep them. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Mary Ellen, welcome to my living room. It's very nice to be here. <laughs> I've uh, invited a few hundred of my friends to hear your story. Good morning, church. <laughs> Mary Ellen and Bill Moen have been members of this church for over 14 years. Mary Ellen and Nancy Evans and Judith Wilson were the founding members of the State College Alliance Bible Study Fellowship, and Mary Ellen was the teaching leader for nine years. This year, she 
became part of the team that helped helped to welcome and acclimate the Afghan family into the United States, but also into State College. So, Mary Ellen, I'm wondering what you have learned from all of that. Thank you for asking. I called Bob Steve yesterday. I'm like only the 1950s movie buffs who would know Steve McQueen. <laughs> so, and I made some notes this morning. I, my goal last night for New Year's Eve was to be sound asleep at midnight. I achieved that goal at the expense of waking up at 5 a.m. So I may have uh, organized myself into paralysis. But what did I learn? What did I learn? I learned a lot. Um, mostly about the heart of God. You know, I think that what I really did was relearn a lot of what I learned um, with my walk with the Lord. And so I came to Christ when I was probably around 25, worked very hard most of my life to learn the Word of God, to know the Word of God, to study the Word of God, to memorize the Word of God, to teach the Word of God. And I am passionate about being washed um, and refreshed and, and molded by the word of God. Well, when you are in ministry, sometimes you, not sometimes, m most of the time, you minister without words. And so everything that you know that God has poured into you is not necessarily to be shoved down somebody's throat or to be uh, imparted through words. It has to be imparted through love and time and attention. And so the greatest thing that I learned was that ministry is messy and ministry is awkward and ministry is not always picture perfect and that God gives us gifts and talents that he wants us to use in our churches, but too often we're afraid sometimes to use those gifts and those talents because we're afraid of the circumstances surrounding the use of those gifts and those talents. And we want it to be picture perfect, or at least I do, right? We live in a picture perfect society with our perfect pictures that we post on Facebook and our perfect lives, when in reality, very often there's pain and there's heartbreak and there's sorrow and there's brokenness and there's mud, <laughs> you know, all over the place. But we're afraid of the mud and we're afraid to show each other um, the broken parts of ourselves. And when you're reaching into the life of somebody who's already totally wounded and broken, the last thing that they need is your picture-perfect Christian walk with the Lord. What they need is a little piece of your heart and a little piece of your life. And so what I really learned was that I'm a really selfish person and that it's very easy for me to um, show up and then run away. Show up and then run away. Show up and then run away. You know, smile and then leave. But when you are investing in the lives of people who don't know Christ, as Chad so perfectly picked the scripture out of second corinthians it's the story of our life and who we are that speaks the loudest and so i learned that you have to be vulnerable i've always been comfortable with vulnerability but i've always been comfortable with vulnerability um, couched in in language and words and so i can ask really good questions and have really good language but um there was no language <laughs> in this relationship. So I learned that, that um, God loves messy, broken, awkward, uncomfortable situations um, to reveal his glory 
and his power and, um, and to really shape and mold not just the person that we're interacting with, but ourselves as well, because he shaped and molded me in the process. I think that often we think what we can do for God and what we can, what we can do when we with, are with somebody else so that we can say we can break, take a meal or do something really special for them. Uh, what did you find out that God wanted you to do with this family? Well, I took some notes. Um, what, well, he just wanted me to hang out with this family, really more than anything. You know, there were some challenges that I encountered right off the bat, and they were time and my tongue. Um, like I said, I love the Word of God, and, you know, when you're interacting with a, a group of people who don't share your faith— number one, but who are absolutely sincerely passionate about their own faith. There's a level of respect that you need to offer and extend, and you have to mix up your agenda. You have to really um, uh, examine, what's my agenda here? You know, is my agenda to shove my faith down their throat or, or correct their, you know, theological errors? Or is my agenda to just be the arms and the feet of Christ? And I think about Jesus, you know. He leaned in to the lives of everybody around him. You know, he, I, I, one of the thoughts I had is that, you know, but for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And so often I want the joy without the cross, right? I want the glory of ministry without the mess of ministry, right? I want the feel-good feeling without the failures and the struggle and the awkwardness. And awkward was really the, my, my, the biggest word. I mean, there was one day where Chrissy and I were um, meeting with the, the, the wife, and she was just at the end of herself. She was at the end of her circumstances. She was at the end of her understanding of how she was going to navigate the road before her. And Chrissy speaks her language. I don't. And Chrissy was doing her best to try to talk her off the ledge. And she was literally just sitting there in her in her emotions. She, she was trapped. And Chrissy's looking at me, and I'm looking at Chrissy. And, you know, it's like, ah. And I just, I just felt like I needed to put my arm around her. And I said, cry. And she, like, looked at me. I said, cry. You obviously want to cry, cry. And the next thing I knew, which was not comfortable for me, I am not a warm, fuzzy person. I'll give you a hug if you hug me, but I'm not that warm and fuzzy. I'm funny, <laughs> but not fuzzy. And um, I found myself rocking this young woman in my arms while she wept. And I realized that what she just needed was her mother. You know, she just needed somebody to see her, somebody to recognize that she was in absolute emotional agony, and she didn't know how to deal with it. And I could have tried to fix her in that moment, told her all the reasons, or had Chrissy interpret all the reasons why she needs to come around in my way of thinking, or everybody's way of thinking. But in that moment, what she just needed was to be held. And um, I think as a church, we forget that sometimes. You know, we think that we're doing everything right when everything looks right or when everything feels right. But that's not what it says. But for the joy set before him, he felt really bad. He died, right? He went to the cross 
to get to the joy. And very often, um, I feel like I want to jump over that cross. Yeah, sometimes all the Lord wants us to do is cry with the other person, put our arms around, not go out and make a meal, but just put our arms around somebody and let them cry. Yeah, and that brought me to my second challenge, which was time. As, as you said, Bob, it's very easy, at least I've realized now, it's so easy for me to make a meal, it's so easy for me to write a check, it's so easy for me to make a phone call and find the item or the thing that somebody needs, but when it came time to relinquishing my calendar and my time, that was where the Lord showed me the true depth of my sin. They say if you really wanna know where your heart is, uh, aligned with the heart of God, look at your checkbook and look at your calendar. And I had to spend, um, at times, vast amounts of time just sitting there, you know, or driving somewhere. And, um, but the fun part was that, and so let me, let me get to the best part. So on the other side of the cross, there's joy, right? We laughed. Once I let myself just enter in to the fact that I had no idea what I was doing, and I let them know that I had no idea what I was doing, and I was completely at a loss with the language, with the customs, uh, and I was just like apologizing left and right. That was when we all started to laugh. See, there are some common languages that the, the Lord has given us, universal languages of trust and compassion and kindness and love. And those are forged in the fires of time. And I say fires because it was painful to give up my time to forge that trust. But once that trust was forged, that was when the laughter flowed in and the, you know, they, I love them now, they love me. We've had some deep, believe it or not, theological conversations where I've said, uh-uh, we can't go there because we, we disagree and we just need to respect each other and disagree, you know? One day, uh, uh, Pardis said to me, what's God's name? And I looked at him and I said, God. And he laughed. And we sat there and laughed. And then he said, no, no, no. What's God's name? I said, Pardis, God knows his name. And he goes, yeah. <laughs> so we were able to come together in the fact that we both love the Lord. There is one God. And whether his theology and my theology are aligned right now, the arms and the legs and the love of Christ, they will know we are Christians by our love, is what I believe is going to lead them to that place where God will bring somebody more eloquent and more educated, like you know the Johnsons, um, in, into their life to, to take them that final road to know about Jesus and learn about Jesus and truly understand about Jesus. My role was to just mess things up and then laugh about it, and I was blessed by that. Sometimes all God wants is for us to let him mess up our lives. <laughs> yeah. Amen. Yeah. Let's, let's thank you. You're thank welcome. you for sharing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the God of messes. And Lord, when you put us into those situations, you always give us the way to go and the way to speak. If only we will listen. And so, Lord, I just ask your blessing on the Moen family, Lord, and especially on Mary Ellen as she continues to minister. 
Amen.